Old School Lane Casual Chats is brought to you by OldSchoolLane.blogspot.com and is associated with Channel Frederator, Manic Expression, The Comic Book Cast, and The Araminta Show. episode of casual chats i am patricia and i am back with chris aka rowdy c welcome back chris yo and hello over the past few years chris and i have been looking at different eras of disney so uh, for those who are new to this podcast and are wondering which eras of disney we're talking about well disney fans like to separate all of the classic disney animated films into seven different eras so Chris and I had discussed about the golden era, which ranged from the late 30s all the way to the early 40s, the silver era, which ranged from the 50s all the way up until the late 60s, and all uh, the renaissance era, which ranged from the late 80s to the late 90s. So today, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the Aristocats, Chris and I are going to be discussing about the bronze era, or some people like to call it the dark era so yeah it's kind of funny because a lot of people seem to actually split these into two it's like some people say that uh, you went from the 70s with the bronze era and then the dark era is the 80s well some people actually put it together so for the sake of easing things off we are actually going to be talking about both of these eras and just call it the bronze era or the dark era so uh, as we left off last time, a few months ago, we did discuss about the Silver Era, ending it off with The Jungle Book. It was the last movie that Disney was alive seeing the production of, and he had passed away due to lung cancer. And so now we have the next movie that followed up with The Jungle Book with the Aristocats. And this is basically when the nine old men were still at the last years of their um, careers with working on Disney films, and basically were just going through the notion about 
what would Walt do? Like, what would he um, think that, you know, the direction of these movies and how the company is going to go? There was a lot of um, mixture with, you know, a lot of people who are running the company, especially with the passing of his brother, Roy Disney. And yeah, let's just say that things didn't exactly start off very well, you know, when it comes to the company and when it came to how the movies turned out in the end. Yeah, uh, it's definitely well, the, well. I'll definitely begin to when we start getting to some of those movies later on. But it it, it really started getting bad in uh, actually in the early '80s. But I guess we're going to be first to be talking about the films in the '70s and whatnot. And obviously, this was an issue where they were obviously still dealing with um, uh, things like having to find ways to continue to cut costs and make their films affordable, which they had to have uh, been adjusting to do ever since Sleeping Beauty. They've been using, like, Xerox and, and, and stepping up, the, up the, uh, uh, the practice of reusing animated cells and whatnot, which, you know, quite a few uh, people within the, the animation production studio weren't particularly fond of. But there, was, there were more or less necessities in order to uh, continue to make their movies profitable. And now they were having to deal with, as you put out, deal with, out managing to continue these without the uh, direction of the company's founder and again it was just it, it was kind of a snowball effect like, like i said it really started hitting the fan in the early 80s but we'll get there eventually i'm sure so we might as well get us first started with um yeah the 1970s productions yeah, so the first movie we're going to start off is with the Aristocats, which, which premiered on December 24th, 1970. So apparently, from what I understand, it was based off of like a newspaper in France in which they were, you know, a lot of the Disney animators and writers were just reading through like this old um, newspaper article where it discussed about an old woman from France was dying and she had no heir to her uh, riches and so she decided to give it to her cats and so they decided to kind of say hey I mean what would you know what would the cat's perspective be like you know what would you know what would happen if we expand more of the story so Essentially, we have the usual contenders with the nine old men working on the story and a lot of the people who would uh, voice in various other Disney movies before and even afterwards would come back, such as Phil Harris and Ava Gabor and Sterling Holloway and uh, various others. So the, the, so basically it takes place in, the, in Paris in the year 1910 where we have a woman simply called as uh, Madame or her full name is... Adelaide Bonfamile, and she has uh, her cat named Duchess, and she has three kittens, which are Berlioz, Marie, and Toulouse. And she is writing her will alongside with her companion, George. And then her butler, Edgar, was overhearing that because she has no relatives to give her money away to, that um, she's most likely going to give it to the butler, Edgar. And, but then... There's the fact that the cats are going to be getting the inheritance. And so Edgar was like really furious that the cats are going to be getting the inheritance and not him. And so he decided that he's going to pull off this lav uh, this lavish scheme involving with him, you know, kidnapping the kittens, taking them elsewhere and pretending that they were lost or something. Well, he gets the inheritance. And then along the way, Duchess, Marie, Toulouse and Berlioz meet up with an alley cat named Thomas O'Malley. He tries to get them home. And basically that's pretty much the story. It's it's a very basic story. There's not really much to it. 
Yeah, yeah, and I remember you. So, so a lot of, uh, there have been in the these years past uh, since a number of uh, a number of uh, of online reviewers and whatnot they have suggested this is this might actually be one of the weakest stories as um far as a lot of out of the um old classic movies have gone. Looking back, even I can kind of admit, yeah, there isn't really much to the overall story. In fact, there's probably two scenes above all else that probably are the only things that really became particularly memorable regarding this film. I'll do them in kind of reverse chronological order. The first is, of course, the um, musical number Everybody Wants to Be a Cat, which was, of course, performed by Thomas O'Malley, voiced by Phil Harris, and his more or less gang of musical cats that they end up uh, meeting up on their journey back. The second one, of course, is when Edgar is trying to transport these cats away and ends up getting chased down and attacked by a couple of rogue dogs that um that, that, that ha and they have almost military style attitude as they try to hunt down tires. The leader of which I believe, of course, is um voiced by Pat Buttram, yes. who of course voiced the sheriff of Nottingham in the Robin Hood film, but of course is most perhaps most known for voicing well not well not voicing, actually full out performing the role of Mr. Haney in the Green Acres television show. Though the, those I will still admit that the um the scene where the where Edgar's getting chased by the dogs was one of the most funniest scenes I remember watching of any of, of any of these movies that I was watching as a kid. That being said, like I said, it's one of the only really memorable uh, scenes from this movie. And looking at it from an objective perspective, it being alone enough to carry the movie may or may not may or may not be enough. I'll have to admit. Yeah. Now here's the thing. I, I don't know if this is true, Chris, but. I think I remember a long time ago, like listening to like a behind the scenes story or something that apparently that the animators really loved the dog so much because of their wacky hijinks that they decided to include that additional scene where, you know, Edgar forgot his hat and his umbrella and then he had to go back to get it. And so that they added the dogs in so they could have more wacky hijinks. Is that true? Uh, I'm not exactly sure about um, that. I, I don't I don't know a ton about uh, the behind the scenes uh, information regarding this movie in particular. One or two more, I will be I'll be able to give some more uh, behind the scenes info later on in this in, in this recording. But as far as that goes, I, I'm not 100% sure. Fair enough. I guess that, um, you know, you can kind of tell, like, when listening to the music, you know, it does capture the, the Sherman Brothers whimsy. And um, I think that with... Um, you know, with the, the scenes that you just mentioned about how, you know, a lot of these like wacky chase scenes and all that kind of stuff is a very good highlight. But I think a lot of people can argue that it kind of pads the film and it could have been replaced with something that was more crucial to the story. Like maybe about, oh, uh, Madame, maybe when she, you know, maybe like developing her character or Edgar developing his character, or maybe um, we get to see more about Duchess and how she was raised, or maybe we get to know about the backstory of Thomas O'Malley. And, and it's kind of a way, it's what it's, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Lady and the Tramp, except with cats and it taking place in Paris. Um, it's, and also, um, uh, I, I think that, um, you know, the, the usual beats with the story, it's like, it's just not very complex. I mean, it doesn't have to be to be interesting, but just something about it just doesn't really engage you. I mean, if you, 
And also, I, I remember a lot of people from what I, when I remember watching this movie as a kid is that for anybody who ever watched the Aristocats, they hated the character of Marie. They thought that she was a completely useless character who just got herself into trouble. I mean, every chance that she got, I mean, she would always be like making fun of her brothers or going over to her mom saying, you know, that she's being made fun of and that she was a proper lady. And Every, you know, and then when she was outside and, you know, left behind or being thrown into the, you know, accidentally landed into the river when they were at the train tracks, it's like a lot of people hated this character from what I remember. But in Japan, they loved Marie, even to the point in which they were doing the directed video sequels in the 2000s. They wanted to do a, a sequel to the Aristocats just focusing on Marie. There's even a manga dedicated to Marie. And I guess it makes sense for the Japanese audience because she's very cute and she's a white cat. You know, kind of reminiscent of Hello Kitty. But it's just kind of interesting. It kind of reminds me of the, the of how... Um, you know, some depictions of the character differ very um, varied uh, depending on where you're from. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's definitely a, there's definitely kind of a cultural differential in, 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 in characters like these sometimes. One need only look at The Legend of Zelda with Tingle to, explain, to, to elaborate further on that. But that's a subject for another time. Sure. But, yeah, um, I would say that um, with this movie... I mean, I remember when I watched it in Disney Plus not too long ago, you have that scene in which when you have the the kittens meeting up with um with the geese and they're like doing the the walk, just like the it, it, it just looks so weird looking at how incredibly awkwardly smooth it was. Like, I don't know, just the thing about the movie just looked really weird. I mean, I know that the first widescreen movie was Lady and the Tramp and, you know, it looked really nice, but I don't know, just some certain scenes with like walking and how the, 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 it was presented. I don't know if it was the remastered version of the Aristocats and maybe that's, um, maybe that, I mean, I know that they're, that Disney is infamous for like taking something and making it too clean and too refined, but it just, I don't know, for some reason when I was watching this movie, it just looked really jarring at some points. Perhaps it's actually been a while since I've I've watched uh, this movie in in length, so I, I may, maybe I will check that out later on and see what uh, what you are referring to. All right, that's fine. So yeah, I don't really have much to say about the Aristocats. I mean, there are some pretty decent moments in there. I mean, I do enjoy some of the music. Uh, Thomas O'Malley is a highlight, and you know, there's some good things here and there. But I wouldn't call it like one of my favorite Disney movies, and. Uh, I know that some people are going to be saying about like, oh, what about the depiction of uh, Thomas O'Malley's friends and stuff like that? It's like, okay, so you have like, you know, the scat cat and you have like the Italian cat and the American cat and the Chinese cat. And yeah, maybe it's considered to be politically incorrect by today's standards, very similar to how um, the crows were in Dumbo or the Siamese cats were in The Lady and the Tramp. But I mean, again, you have to consider that this was around the 70s and, you know, those kind of things were you know, kind, I mean, even though today it's not accepted, but, you know, back then, you know, it was, I mean, it, it, that's just how the depictions were back then. So, uh, I mean, like the fact that we have, you know, Scat Cat played by, uh, what was it, Scatman Carruthers who voiced as him? Mm hmm yeah, so he, you know, he does a great job as always. And Phil Harris is always a delight to hear. And Ava Gabor, uh, you know, she would also be in this and in The Rescuers, which we'll discuss about in just a moment. So, yeah, I mean, definitely not one of the best Disney movies from this particular era or in general. So, yeah, I don't really have much to say about it. Yeah. So, 
And yeah, let's go over to the next movie. Uh, so the next one it came out in 1973, and it is Robin Hood, obviously based off of the legend of Robin Hood, known uh, throughout the, um, you know, known throughout as uh, the the man who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. It's actually really interesting about that. This is one of the, um, I think this is the first Disney movie that actually has all of their characters as anthropomorphic creatures. I mean, we've had seen our fair share of, you know, creatures that are like more realistic, like the Jungle Book and such but yeah this is the first one that has all of the characters anthropomorphic there are no humans and they wouldn't tackle something like this until Zootopia now when this movie first came out it was a bit of a mixed bag especially when people said that it just copied off animation from movies such as Snow White and the Jungle Book and the Aristocats and now since then it has become a major classic for a lot of Disney fans and it's gained a, a larger cult following than it did um, almost 50 years ago. So yeah, what are your thoughts on this movie? It definitely, it's definitely been one of those films throughout the years where um, animators and people behind the scenes in the Disney Walt Disney Company still do not look upon it very fondly. But however, even almost from the time it was released, the viewers have had a great fondness for this film. And that's it, that's kind of an example of where sometimes, and, and I, this is something I talk about and probably other animators, animation um, critics of nowadays point out as well, is that this is definitely one of those films where the, the, maybe the animation wasn't the top-notch level, especially that, that an organization like Walt Disney Pictures was known for and expected of themselves. But it's one of those cases where uh, you can get away with lesser quality animation if the story and characterizations um, are very well done. And this is a film that is absolutely carried by the characters. Um, I mean, not, not just Robin Hood himself. You've got Little John voiced by Phil Harris, Briar Tuck, this, just great performances of Peter Ustinov as Prince John and the aforementioned Pat Buttram as the Sheriff of Nottingham. All these... All of these performers just knew how to completely uh, portray these characters in such a whimsical, um, entertaining way that it just becomes as um, it's just a, a, a just remembered so fondly by those who watched it even to this day. Yeah, I remember like, it must have been like 10 years ago. I remember when Robin Hood had, no, it, yeah, it was almost 10 years ago. I remember this. The movie was released on DVD to celebrate the movie's uh, 40th anniversary or something. And there was like a like a five-year-old kid who was holding the movie on DVD saying that he wanted it because it just looked so appealing to him. And I just thought, wow, that's actually really interesting. It's like, you know, you have a movie that was probably released around when, you know, his parents were kids and, you know, he wanted to own it on his own volition. But yeah, I think that um, it's very akin to like a lot of, um, you know, cartoons or movies that don't have exactly the best animation, but they make up for it for their characters and their dialogue. It's kind of like a Rocky and Bullwinkle kind of situation in which like the animation may not look the best because it was low budget and it was done in Mexico. But What's but but what people still remember about it was that it had like the witty dialogue and you know jokes that went over kids' heads and 
you know, talks about politics and various other things. And the characters were lovable. I mean, like, um, you know, if we're going into Robin Hood, you know, everybody remembers Robin Hood, Prince John, the Sheriff of Nottingham, Friar Tuck. Um, uh, you know, you have his, you have Maid Marian, uh, Lady Cluck. A lot of people still remember these characters. A lot of people remember the songs like Udalali and, um, you know, Love at Last or the, um, what was it, like um, the... Um, Phony uh, King of England. The Phony King of England. Yeah, there you go. So I mean, these uh, songs were so beloved that people were more or less taking a lot of some of these songs and adapting them into others. Something like, uh, do the words hamster dance mean anything? Oh, that's you? right. I forgot about that. <laughs> I mean, that, so, that, that number is basically the original, just the original uh, instrumental from the opening credits of that movie, just like sped up like David Seville would do. <laughs> or Ross Bagdasarian, his actual real-life character. I mean, it's, it's stuff like that that makes it more memorable. And then the stuff where I tried, um, you know, I watched this, uh, we all watched this scene as a kid earlier, years ago. Since then, I've rewatched it since, and because, especially because I'm a, of course, I, since, in the years since I became a major sports fan, you, you go back to that scene where your Lady Cluck is, bu is, is bulldozing through King's guards like, she, like she's a fullback, and I'm just wondering, okay, what's, and you hear these songs playing in your head, and I know what they are, and I'm thinking, okay, these, which college fight songs are they playing in this thing? Took me a while to realize, <laughs> it's actually, it, it is actually a combination of USC's Fight On, and then University of Wisconsin's On Wisconsin. That's just the thing that I figure out. If I've got only, you know, that being said, it's definitely, it's definitely not a perfect film, especially after, you know, I've seen uh, your, your colleague Eli Stone's old review of it, where he pointed this thing out, how there actually was an alternate ending that, uh, that I actually was kind of disappointed to hear that it didn't get involved in. We also, if you know the, the original ending, you know, Robin Hood is trying, it tries to flee the castle. He gets he's getting shot down by arrows. It looks like they may have it may may have shot him down, but he just pops out of the water. It's okay, and that's everything good. There was an alternate ending where supposedly he does get wounded. He still makes it out. He's he manages to escape to Friar Tuck's church, where Maid Marian is trying to care for him. Only but immediately bursts in Prince John. I know this might not be too true to his character, but he's brandishing a sword. He's about to just finish the job off right here and now. And then pops in King Richard. And yeah. that's the only thing that even even I think even before I heard about this alternate ending, I will say that's the one thing I would have liked to have seen in this movie that we didn't get, which we have seen in other um, adaptations of this legend, is to actually see Prince John be confronted by his brother, and realizing at that point, uh, the one person he cannot intimidate, the one person he knows is the true ruler of England, and just to um, just have to admit that now he has lost and it's all over. And I will admit, even now at this age, it was a bit disappointing that we don't get to see that type of catharsis at the end, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I actually do agree with you, because... 
I mean, if you were to see the movie in its original form, Maid Marian is like completely gone from the third act. Like we see her in the first act and a bit of the second act, but then in the third act, when we have um, Robin Hood sneaking into the castle so they can steal the gold and all that, and then the huge ambush happens, she's nowhere around. And then, you know, King Richard just suddenly appears. And then you know, we have the narrator Rooster saying, oh, King Richard returned and everything went back to normal. It's like, really? I mean, that's kind of disappointing that we weren't able to go more in depth. I mean, I would have liked to seen Prince John go absolutely insane about to, you know, finish off Robin Hood once and for all. But then King Richard came along and said, uh-uh-uh, you can't do that. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I wish would have happened for sure. Um, another thing that I will say about this movie is that, um, you know, when it comes to uh, how a lot of people seem to look fondly on Robin Hood, is that, I don't know, for, for some reason, they're able to overlook the animation redones and uh, redos, and they're able to look past the fact that maybe it doesn't exactly stick close to the original legendary story, but there's just something about it that really... Um, you know, captivates people, whether it be with the diet, whether it be with um, the way that Robin Hood and Little John just have this really good chemistry together, and how Prince John is just so fappish and just so incredibly uh, snively and a crybaby when he's has this so much power. It's like if you took the Queen of Hearts and then just made her into a crybaby. I, I think I remember uh, seeing the documentary Frank and Ollie where. Um, they base it off uh, where I think it was like Frank who talked about like, oh, you know, I remember my son would like be crying all the time and sucking his thumb. And so he decided to put those kind of elements into Prince John and how it was actually one of their favorite characters that they animated. And I think that, um, you know, it just gives so much personality to the character. I mean, it, it's essentially like if you took Sher Khan and just made him into a crybaby and we'd have his it was it's essentially Ka, you know, the fact that instead of having the hypnotic powers, you know, he has the tongue that he just sometimes tickles Prince John's ear, but he's very astute. He knows about the tricks of, you know, um, of Robin Hood and Little John where they have their disguises and, you know, um, and also the, the romance is, is actually pretty nice. I mean, I wish that we would have seen more of it if the deleted scene didn't get cut off from the final product. But I actually do enjoy Robin Hood and Maid Marian's uh, relationship. I just wish it was a little bit longer, uh, maybe a little bit more backstory about how, um, you know, they've met when they were kids and then they fell in love and then they got separated and then... Um, all they, and then they finally got back together and they were talking and catching up. But I guess um, Love at Last is like uh, a bit of a quieter moment where we do get to see that love come into fruition. And, you know, like they say, less is more. But yeah, and I think I even remember like, um, you know, how for some, I mean, I think I remember in recent years when Phony King of England became really popular for a lot of people. It's like, oh, yeah, we're just going to sing a song about how there's this ruler of this particular place that's just so incompetent with everything and just goes on, goes about being a crybaby and all that kind of stuff. I, I remember that trending so much on social media for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, but, yeah, overall, I have to say that this movie is very enjoyable. I think it's definitely one of my favorite Disney movies growing up and uh, of this particular era. 
And um, I think that, um, you know, it's pretty overlooked. I know a lot of people seem to criticize it, saying, you know, that the story could have been stronger and the animation could have been better. But I think for the stuff that it does have, like the characters and the action scenes and the comedic scenes and the romantic scenes and the music, I think it makes up for it. All right, so let's go over to our next film. So we have... Uh, the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh from 1977, based off of the children's uh, book series by A.A. A. Milne. Now, I know that this was originally based off of like a few Winnie the Pooh shorts that they just cobbled together. There was Winnie the Pooh in the Honey Tree, Winnie the Pooh in the Blustery Day, and Winnie the Pooh in Tigger 2. And... I think that when it comes to like the Xerox style of animation, you know how we, it had like the sketchy look with the with the thick pencil lines and all that kind of stuff. I think it really works here for Winnie the Pooh because it is based off of a children's book, and it has the the narrator and it has um, you know everything that looks like it was drawn with um, you know with pencil and you know colored in with like simple painting. So I think with the style, I think it looks the best here, and with the stories, I mean like. There's not really much to say. I mean, everybody knows who Winnie the Pooh is. Everybody knows about the characters Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, Piglet, Eeyore, Owl, Kangaroo, Christopher Robin. Like, and, you know, it takes place in the course of a year with, like, you know, Winnie the Pooh going on through a whole bunch of uh, crazy adventures alongside with his friends. And it also has some really great quiet moments with him and Christopher Robin. So, uh, I think that uh, the way that um, it's presented here, and now this is somebody who is not the biggest Winnie the Pooh fan. I mean, I like it. I even like the the series that came out of the 90s, and I did see a few of the Winnie the Pooh um, cartoons. Um, but, you know, as for, like, how this is presented, it's actually done pretty well. And I think that, um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, for Winnie the Pooh fans is definitely uh, one that kind of still holds up with, like, how, you know, simple the story is and how, um, you know, kind of like um, quiet and serene it is. And I think that, you know, for any Winnie the Pooh fan that they'll definitely, um, you know, you know, they'll definitely say is, def is one of the best adaptations of the character. Well, yeah, I'm Well, first I want to admit here, this is um, back when uh, my sister and I were kids. Uh, one, we, we actually, whenever we tried to list all of the, um, all of the Walt Disney animated films, we, one of the reasons we seemed like we were never able to um, figure out every single one of them was probably because we weren't aware this was actually a full-length motion picture. You you you, you said it yourself. It was more or less a a, a, a conglomeration of a number of different sh uh, uh, different short films that we actually saw it saw them individually when they were rebroadcast on the in the early days of the Disney Channel. And whatnot. So yeah, for the longest time, I was not even aware this was viewed upon as a motion picture. That being said, yeah, I will um, agree with you Leo, definitely on a, a point or two here in the fact that this is often the case of a number of Walt Disney's animated uh, films, but this is probably among the um, biggest examples of where the Disney version became such beloved and entrenched among viewers that it definitely, I think, means um, it, it probably is, is what people think of first and foremost besides the original A.A. A. Milne stories. And I'll give you, like, the primary example of this was going back again to my sister and me. me uh, back in our, our you know, late teenage years or whatnot, we, when we were both attending theater school together, uh, we were both cast in a um, in a stage production of the house at Pooh Corner. Now keep in mind, 
this was uh, a, a stage play adapted direct from the original story. There was no actual connection to Disney whatsoever in this uh, stage version. And yet, not just myself and my sister, but every single, virtually the director and every single other person that was um, performing in this play, we more or less all agreed that we needed to portray our characters as the Disney versions because that was pretty much, because we pretty much figured that was what our audience was going to be looking for. And it, it really was kind of thing. And we actually ended up doing this show twice, like once in the springtime and once in the summer was done again. So that just goes to show just how influential this film in particular was. The fact that most people will think about the portrayals that were made by, the, by these Disney productions before they even think of the original source material. Here's the thing that a lot of people seem to um, really love about the Winnie the Pooh characters is that they're just so lovable. Like, I mean, you know, a lot of people have issues with some of the characters. It's like, oh, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse, he's, you know, uh, doesn't, there's not really much to him or Donald Duck, you know, he can be kind of loud and obnoxious and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when it comes to like Winnie the Pooh characters, I mean, what negative thing can you say about them other than, oh, um, he, uh, I don't know. I just don't like them. I mean, which it's fair enough. I mean, you don't have to like them, but you know, the fact that there's not like a legitimate way to not say that, oh, I don't really care too much about them. It's like, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. They're just so lovable. They're just so um, incredibly likable that you just want to be with them. You want to be in the hundred acre wood and interact with them and have fun adventures together. And uh, you know, you're not going to go into like a complex adventure, like if you were to go into like the world of uh, Narnia or anything like that, or you know, Middle Earth. But, um, uh, but it, but it would still be an enjoyable experience nonetheless. Like if you were to interact with Pooh and you know talk about various things, or um, you know interact with uh, Piglet or Rabbit or. Uh, owl or tigger like you would enjoy yourself and you know you would be in a and every uh, character would have their own experience with what they're going through and they have their own reasoning on why they believe that i mean there's a reason why winnie the pooh characters became so beloved um benjamin hoff even wrote a book about them called the Tao of pooh in which he kind of made this really interesting analysis about how um winnie the pooh characters are practicing the art of taoism and uh, there's just something about them that is just like so interesting to be a part of. And that's why I think they still are a massive conglomerate in Disney property. That's why we still have like the TV shows. That's why we have the directed video movies. That's why um, there was the 2011 film and the live action film. So yeah, there's a reason why people still gravitate towards the Disney version of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, one thing, uh, well, I guess as long as they try to keep them as as uh, animated as possible and not in the puppet form like the house that like Welcome to Pooh Corner was, which of course I I I, I of course reviewed in my two hundred in my tenth anniversary special of TV Trash earlier this very year. That that's what version that I won't say it's really disliked, but it's one that gets a lot of jokes told about. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, of course, right. with the of course the um the, of course there was also the um the most recent version the two thousand the uh, Christopher Robin movie live action that combined with animation, which I don't think I'll ever dare dare watch a second time because I'll confess I went and saw it one time, and let's just say I was a crying blubbering mess. 
I understand. From watching that thing. That, that, that movie just absolutely hit me in places that it, 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 it broke down all my emotions at once. I'm just saying, if you want to watch that movie, prepare yourself if you're an emotional human being. <laughs> I understand. I understand. But yeah, uh, definitely another one that's uh, a recommendation for this particular era. So again, go check it out if you haven't. So now we go over to what was pretty much the most successful movie during the uh, Bronze Era, and that was The Rescuers. So The Rescuers uh, was in development for quite a while. It was actually in development during the 60s. But uh, due to the political overtones, Disney didn't really care for it, and so it was put off the shelf for a while. Uh, but then, uh, because of um, a senior animation staff uh, following the release of Robin Hood, they decided, you know, let's see if we can give this another chance. And so um, they decided to, um, you know, release it. And it was, like I said earlier, it has been the most successful Disney film on that particular era, um, more so than any of the ones that came out until obviously the movie we're going to be talking about a little later, but we'll get to that. So it's based off of a book. Uh, called The Rescuers and Miss Bianca by Marjorie Sharp. And it's about um, these two mice named Bernard and Miss Bianca, who are part of a society called the Rescue Aid Society, where they would um, go around and help people from all over the world. And in one case, they are sent to a mission to help this little girl in Louisiana named Penny. And the reason why they are helping her is because she's an orphan who is being taken over by these two people. Uh, there is, um, uh, let's see, Madame Medusa and her associate. And basically the whole point was that they're taking her because there just so happens to be a large diamond under you know, the, the ship that they're living in and they're just using her so that they can be able to get it. And Miss Bianca and Bernard are rescuing her. And, you know, there's a bunch of wacky shenanigans ensue. And uh, from what I understand, this is the last movie that most of the nine old men worked on right before they retired. And you can definitely tell that it has a lot of the the stylings of the nine old men when you take a look at the characters. Like, you know, the mice look similar to akin to Robin Hood and the villain looks very akin to something of, you know, Cruella de Vil and the crocodile companions look like something from Peter Pan. Uh, I, I think that a lot of people were kind of mixed with this movie when it first came out, but despite it being a major success, I think that w when it, you know, people are looking at this and then they see the rescuers down under, which a lot of people say is the much better movie. And, you know, I haven't seen The Rescuers Down Under in a while. I, I still need to go watch it um, and see it for myself. But from this movie, I think that it's okay. I mean, it's not one of the better Disney movies, in my opinion. I mean, I still enjoy watching um Robin Hood and Winnie the Pooh a little bit more than the rescuers but I do see that it's a it's a good movie that has its heart in the right place at points I mean you have these you know little mice who are trying to save this little girl and you know it kind of gives an interesting story a uh, lesson about how you know even the smallest people can or smallest creatures in this case can be able to tackle in such big adventures and I, I swear to you, I mean, I, with this whole talk about like the whole Tom and Jerry movie that's been going on with the trailer being released, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm crazy, but the Tom and Jerry movie from the 90s, I feel, is a complete ripoff of The Rescuers. Think about it. You have an orphan girl who's being kept by her, 
you know, Aunt Fig, or, you know, in this case, you know, somebody who just so happens to want her for money. She has an associate. You have these animals who are trying to rescue her. And it, it, I don't know, just something about it just felt beat for beat, almost like the rescuers with this with the Tom and Jerry movie. But th that's just, uh, I, I don't know if that's actually true I could or not. Definitely, I mean, I could definitely see that, that, that possibility and the uh, direct, um, comparison uh, to it yeah you do mention how you know maybe the rescuers down under was probably a more well-written version of it and that probably definitely uh contributes to the fact that at that point uh, even even though they hadn't yeah they hadn't yet completely rebounded they probably that disney at that time was probably willing to put more money into the productions which you know the uh, script writing could definitely be affected by that so uh, yeah it does look they were they were still they were still mostly on a meager budget at this time, and of course you do mention the um, the anime. I guess that yes, that I'm looking up information at this point. It was like the last, yeah, it was the last joint effort by Milt Kyle, Ali Johnson, and Frank Thomas, and was actually the first film that uh, Don Bluth worked on as a directing animator. I'm sure we're going to bring up that name in just a bit as well. So yeah. this was definitely one of those movies where the transition was really at least tr attempting to start beginning of moving on from those nine old men to the people that uh that disney felt would take them into the next generation of animation and uh for the most part it looks like they were able to mainly manage to get this thing uh done with little difficulty for the most part maybe that was one of the reasons why it became the most successful and uh, financially speaking film of this time period. Uh, that being said, it is one that yeah I I often kind of forget about myself. There's a there's a handful of funny scenes in it, like when Mr. Snoops is running around just shooting a shotgun off everywhere, trying to um tr trying uh, tr trying to catch those two mice. In fact, I remember this. I think probably the, one of the first times I saw that scene at all was with that Disney Halloween special that was hosted by uh, the Wicked Witch's Magic Mirror. And when they, they actually sp uh, spliced in scenes in which Snoops is chewing all that gut around, he ends up cracking and shattering the mirror everywhere. That right. was uh, kind of entertaining. Yeah, but other than that, it's, it's definitely a movie that got, that got its charm and obviously was enough beloved enough by the um, studio to make that uh, sequel about... Uh, 12, 13 years later. Uh, that having been said, it is one of those that I kind of, maybe that's my own fault, kind of forget about in passing every now and then. Yeah, I think a lot of people do tend to forget about the original Rescuers because a lot of people, especially from our generation, look more fondly of the Rescuers down under. And here's the thing, you don't even have to watch the original Rescuers in order for you to enjoy the Rescuers down under because they feel separate. And... Um, you know, when, when it comes to like all the other movies that came out of this era, it's not one that you immediately think of. I mean, you would think more of the Aristocats more than you would think of the Rescuers, even though that at the time it was the most successful movie that came out financially around the 70s. I think that, you know, with um, the movies that came out before and some of the movies that came out afterwards, it does tend to be left in the shadows, which... You know, for some people, it feels like, oh, it's, it's a shame. But for others, it's like, it's not really much of a loss. So 
you know, you guys decide on what you personally feel about the rescuers. I just think it's a, it's definitely a middle of the road kind of movie. I, I don't hate it. I don't love it. It's just okay. So now we can go over to the 80s. So this is definitely where the nine old men like completely finished off. This is like the true passing of the torch in where the nine old men were working on this very last film and then they decided to hand it over to the new generation of animators. So well, sort of it's not it's not so much a case of passing the torch as it was kind of fumbling the torch around while arguing who get who still got to keep it and this company eventually had to fight had to find some other people to pick it up. But we'll get to that in just a bit. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. I guess I was just trying to put the nice way of doing it. But, <laughs> yeah, I get what you're saying. Okay, so The Fox and the Hound, uh, based off of a book written by Daniel P. Mannix, uh, which is a very dark book. I read it not too long ago, and oh my god, like, wow. But anyway, that's not that's neither here or there. So, uh, the basically, the book takes place around, I guess, I don't know, maybe like around the... 30s or 40s or something i'm not sure but anyway so basically it starts off with um a fox who was uh left orphaned because a hunter came and shot his mom very bambi-esque and so we have uh you know the old lady known as widow tweed who decides to take the little fox in and raise it as her own and names it todd uh, meanwhile we have her neighbor uh, who is, you know, raising a puppy by the name of Copper, and he's training him to be a hunting dog. And along the way, we have the friendship between the um, the, the baby fox and the puppy. Uh, no, so we have Todd and Copper who have this really good friendship together, even though that they are meant to be sworn enemies, with, you know, Copper being trained to be a hunting dog, and he would hunt foxes like Todd. And so... The, the first half of the movie is clearly, you can definitely tell it was done by the nine old men. It's very colorful, it's very whimsical, it's very lighthearted, it's very slow paced. And you can definitely tell that this was the last remnant of the nine old men right before they retired. And then the second half is when it gets really dark and really serious, which you can definitely tell is done by the new generation of animators, such as like the likes of Don Bluth and Richard Rich and various other people. So. The second half, uh, it takes place about a year later where, you know, they're all grown up and they have to learn about how, you know, they can no longer be friends because, well, their class tells them that they are meant to be sworn enemies. And so um, along the way, we have, um, you know, Chief, which is the second dog, chasing Todd up into the railroad tracks and then he gets hit by the train. And in the original book, he was supposed to be dead. And Copper was supposed to get revenge on Todd for essentially killing his older brother. Uh, but Art Stevens was saying, no, we never killed a main Disney character. And we, why should we start now? And, you know, the, the, the people who were working on this movie were like, no, we should keep to the original style of the book because it would make it more poignant. But no, there was like massive disagreements, like you were saying earlier about like, you know, who's really in charge of this movie, the nine old men or the new animators. So there was a lot of fumbling around about like, you know, keeping to the spirit of the original book while at the same time, you know, trying to soften it for a more family friendly audience. And 
I guess it, in the end it does so in which when, you know, finally when, um, you know, Copper is, you know, preventing his owner from killing Todd when he's injured after he saves him from the bear. And, you know, he lets him free and then they just live happily ever after. Where in the original, it's, it's very sad. I just want to let you know that. But I'm sure that, you know, given the fact that this is... um. You know, uh, you know, a based off of a book that was pretty dark. It's not too surprising that that would happen. So, yeah, um, I can definitely tell with the shift that you know you have the lighthearted moments with Todd and Copper being friends, and then you have the second half with them being enemies, and with the the whole mishap with Chief with what happened with his leg and all that kind of stuff. I mean. Uh, I know a lot of people really do like this film. Uh, they say that, you know, it's like a personal favorite of theirs. I, I kind of feel the same way with The Rescuers, in which I just think it's okay. I mean, there's some really good things in this, though. Um, I do like Big Mama. She's a really great character. And, you know, the performances of Widow Tweed and Amos Slade are fantastic. And, you know, you also have um, the likes of um, Todd and Copper, who are also really good. Um, you know, kind of funny to think that... Um, you know, Kurt Russell in one of his earlier films with Disney would be playing as the adult copper. And we know Kurt Russell for a lot of other things now. And, you know, like Mickey Rooney is in there as the adult Todd and Corey Feldman as the young copper and Sandy Duncan as uh, Vixie and Pat Buttram once again, uh, playing as uh, another character. He's chief in this one. I think this was like one of the last Disney characters he played as, because I know he played as the guy who ran the Possum Park in a Goofy movie. I think that was his very last role right before he died. But I think this was the last Disney movie he was a part of right before that, the Goofy movie. Not 100% sure there. Um, okay. But yeah, yeah, you definitely, you talk, talk about the, uh, the difficulties. This was definitely where there were a lot of clashes going on mm -hmm. between, let's say, the old and the new. And you, you, you brought this up uh earlier before the first really major uh there was definitely a, a clash between that there were of course the two co-directors one of course was wolfgang reitherman who had been had, had, had been the director from us all the animated films since the 1960s and the co-director art stevens who was more or less the leader of uh, the new animation troupe and there was definitely a lot of clashing between them even though as you pointed out Stevens himself was the one um, adamantly against the idea that uh, that that uh, co that uh, Copper's uh, co-hunting dog got, gets killed in it. That was more or less, if, if what I read is correct, that decision was more or less the final blow that led. This was when Don Bluth left Disney and took a lot of their young animators with him eventually forming up their own studio uh, in the 80s themselves. That was supposedly the last, um, that, that was supposedly the last straw, I guess, for them. And uh, ironically, it wasn't Reitherman that drove him out, but it was Art Stevens that did. That, however, wasn't the end of the troubles because believe it or not, yeah, I don't know if you know about this, there was actually going to be a, um, a uh, musical num another musical number in this movie. that was gonna be performed, believe it or not, by both Phil Harris and Charo. Really? That this was a song that I, I've never I've never seen this performance before. I obviously I don't know if there's any like evidence of, of it anywhere. But apparently Reitherman was insistent that this song was needed because he felt the film did not have a very strong second act. When I guess when both um both uh, Stevens and Disney CEO at the time, Ron Miller, who of course was uh, Walt's son-in-law, 
uh, stuck to uh, leaving out the song, that was what drove Reitherman to retire. And he was more or less, uh, more or less moved upstairs for the last, uh, last few years of his life. I think he passed away in 87 or something like that, mm-hmm. maybe about a little bit earlier. But yeah, there was a lot of, uh, there was definitely a lot of production issues with the movie. I think it delayed the film's release by at least half a year. It still, it still ended up turning a profit, but the after effects of it, of everything that went down in this movie, that was what pretty much led to Ron Miller's time as CEO of Disney coming to an end as Roy E. Disney, if I remember the book, the books I've read correctly, of course, Walt's nephew, Roy E. Disney, more or less had to stage a boardroom coup to oust Miller as CEO, which eventually led to the hiring of Michael Eisner. And oh, wow, that's kind yeah. of Yeah, if you, want, if you want to read more about that, there's, I believe there's a book titled Disney War. I think it's even available for a Kindle downloading off of Amazon if you want to check it out. That really, really went into the, that, that book really goes into details, starting first with like all the issues that led to um, Eisner's eventual hiring and then the long history of the company under Eisner's direction and whatnot. But yeah, this was... This was the movie that, yeah, along with everything else, that really started a lot of the issues that um, Disney uh, was going through. First off, under the people who were trying to more or less fill Walt's shoes exactly, but ultimately led up to the eventual complete turnover of the company under the new direction of Michael Eisner. And the After Effects, of course, would still carry over, especially to um, the next film we're going to be talking about. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that there was a major turnout for this movie. Like, yeah, the movie was delayed for about a half a year because Don Bluth and I think about like 17% of the people who are working at Disney left over to work with him. And I guess, you know, because of all the changes that happened, you know, it's like, oh, we want to keep this. We want to remove this. We want to tone the, 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 the seriousness with this and stuff like that. I guess a lot of people are just like fed up with it. So I guess this is when, you know, the majority of the nine old men decided to retire. And then they were like, you know what? Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, that uh, I guess, you know, a lot of our colleagues were either dead or, you know, at the point of retirement. A lot of the new people are coming on by. We're just clashing heads. It's like, I think our time is officially done. And, you know, kudos for them lasting for almost 40, 50 years with, you know, crafting some of their best work that they've ever done. And they, I guess, you know, you know, times were definitely changing. I mean, the 70s and the 80s, like, you know, when it came to like animated features, you only had like three people who stood out. You had Disney, you had Ralph Bakshi, and you had Don Bluth. That was pretty much it. I mean, other than that, you had like, you know, theatrical movies based off of other, you know, smaller companies like maybe Cosgrove Hall or UPA or maybe even like um, Hasbro if they're doing like the Transformers movie or, um, you know, any or maybe even the Care Bears movie or any of the sort. But that was pretty much it. And, you know, Disney was being left in the dust with like, you know, being overshadowed with the likes of Ralph Bakshi's work with him doing a, a, a lot of his uh, theatrical movies. And then, you know, roughly about, um, you know, a year later or maybe two years later, that's when The Secret of Nim came out. And then Don Bluth became like a major... Um, you know, powerhouse into like 
like, hey, you know, Disney's not the only one who can do theatrical movies. So, yeah, this was, um, and I guess it didn't exactly, you know, help much with the new generation of Disney uh, animators and writers and creators because, who boy, the Black Cauldron. So yeah, um, you have a, you have a history with this, so you go first. Yeah, absolutely. This is um again the definite history because this is, if my memory serves correct me, I think this was the very first or original in its original run, the very first Disney film I saw in theaters in its original theatrical run. I was six years old when this uh, movie came out. Um, and I, I'm not going to deny, it scared the piss out of me. I mean, this was, I actually remembered very, very little of the story itself, maybe because I, oh, I was very attentive disorder at that time, but also just it was so, it was one of the uh, freakiest stories ever. Um, I actually didn't remember much of it until about a year later. I don't know if you knew about this. I finally relented to playing a computer adventure game based directly off of this movie. Oh. The Disney film itself was actually published by Sierra, the same company that produced the King's Quest game series. Oh, sure. That, yeah, and that, that's, that's what first really got me into at least maybe warming back up to the movie itself. But then came my teenage years. And like I said, uh, uh, that, that's when, back around 6th, 7th grade or so, that's when I finally uh, discovered and started reading the Predane Chronicles by Lloyd Alexander that the movie was actually based on. And just those books were so much deeper. And some of the um, most... Uh, developed a sto uh, saga stories that I had read up to that point. It, it's still one of my favorite book series to this day. So it was, I had already read not just the the Black Cauldron book itself, which of course was the second of the, um, the Prudent Chronicles five book saga. I had read that entire, those entire five books by the time the movie finally got a home video release, which I think wasn't until 1998. Yes, 13, and I remember this, and I have a story about this. Yes, 13 years after its original release. And even then, after watching it and comparing it to the books, then even I could tell they left so much, just, just left so much off the table with this thing. Uh, that, that there are a lot of characters like Fluter and Ilanway, that their characters get really cut short in the movie compared to what they were in the original books. Time where I really would say, that, yeah, that the, the original source material was far superior. And then, of course, just reading up on what everything that happened in the build, in the making of this film. Of course, it, basically right now, at this point in time, if you, you're going to ask viewers and fans and followers, what was the worst Walt Disney Pictures animated production ever made? It's basically going to come down to two choices. The Black Cauldron or Chicken Little, which was released 20 years later. The main oh, number, of course, the main reason probably people pick, it's actually pretty, uh, to be honest, it's actually kind of eerily similar, those two movies, these two movies, because when you look at them, they're both clear attempts of a reaction. I would look and say they were reactionary moves on Disney's part, that they see of the company seeing other studios st somehow um, start to outperform them 
and figuring the only way they can keep up with them is to try and make films in that similar style that the competition is doing and just not pulling it off. With Chicken Little, they're clearly trying to copycat DreamWorks and movies like Shrek and the like, which we'll probably get to when we eventually start to uh, talk about those films. In the Black Cauldron's case, it's definitely, I think there definitely had to be people in there that thought they had to mimic the styles of a Don Bluth or a Ralph Bakshi that you mentioned here. And that was probably, again, you mentioned, we mentioned how there was um, uh, a bickering back and forth with the studio heads about the tone and material uh, with the Fox and the Hound. Uh, that was nothing compared to what happened here with the Black Cauldron to hear the stories about this. Like, uh, and remember, this was right when Michael Eisner was taking over the company while this movie was in production. And when he brings in Jeffrey Katzenberg to, pre to primarily oversee the animation department. And they're already thinking, and it's at this point in time, Disney's all, they're already considering that they might not be able to keep the animation studio going because of how much money the company's losing and how much, um, how, in, uh, how expensive the animation can be. And then you go into this um, where you go the whole situation where Kat, the, the legend is that Katzenberg saw the original rough cut of the movie and just insisted it had to be edited down. A whole bunch of stuff just was not appropriate. And, and he was going against the um, wishes of the director who said you can't just cut and, sh cut and slash an animated film. And then Katzenberg supposedly shut himself up into the editing studio and just started hacking and slashing it away anyway. The director had to call in. I get him to stop. And even when he finally convinced Katzenberg to leave, the last thing, supposedly the last thing he told Eisner before walking out was, it's bad, fix it. And <laughs> so they ended up probably doing more edits after that. And yeah, the final result was, that I learned years later, this was probably Disney's most unsuccessful film ever, its biggest financial flop to this date. And it probably was only the due to the um, influence of Roy E. Disney that the animation studio was able to survive past this. Probably a reprieve with the other movies that we'll be soon be getting into. Yeah, I mean, like, they could have easily relied on their live-action stuff, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. They could have, you know, relied on just the theme park, just so they can be able to keep themselves going. Or they could have pulled off a Square Enix and maybe wish they would have merged with another company. Who knows? But, yeah, you're absolutely right. It does. This movie does seem to try to cash in on whatever was really popular at the time. I mean, like... Don Bluth had already did The Secret of Nim, and um, Ralph Bakshi did Wizards. And even, um, even to some extent, I guess you could say Rankin Bass was in their fantasy phase in the 80s. They did the Hobbit movies, they did The Flight of the Dragons, they did The Last Unicorn. They, I mean, this was the same year that they released The, the Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. So... Yeah, I guess the 80s was just like a, a particular period where there was just a lot of animated fantasy films. And I guess, you know, they I guess they saw that, you know, Don Bluth did pretty successful with Secret of Nim. And they're like, oh, man, you know, we can do a fantasy film, too. This movie was a mess from the moment that production happened. It's like 
you know, there was a lot of dark scenes that were from the original book series. And then Jeffrey Katzenberg basically just took an axe and pretty much just chopped everything. And then it was just an overall mess of, you know, just scenes that didn't fit or scenes that could have been benefited with more development and all that kind of stuff. And now I, here's my story about how I got introduced to this movie. So I, I think I owned like a Disney film where I first saw the trailer of Black Cauldron. They were saying like, you know, we're going to release the 10th anniversary special on VHS. And it had like the glittering, um, cover and it looks really inviting and this was like the first time i've ever heard of this movie and so i popped it in by 30 by, by the first 20 minutes i was completely bored by 40 minutes i was just infuriated and then almost like toward the end i just wanted this movie to end and i was just like i never picked this movie up again until just recently i thought okay i'm gonna give it another chance maybe the movie's better than i remembered Okay, I admit that there are some things that I did like about this movie. Uh, the animation is really good. Like, it's it's amazing. Like, if I mean, this is the first Disney movie that was utilizing CGI. And it still looks amazing. The Horned King is a fantastic villain. Definitely one of the more underrated Disney villains. And, and you know, played by, um, you know, John Hurt. And, you know, I love John Hurt. He's one of my favorite actors. You know, God, you know, uh, you know God may he you know, rest in peace. But... He was fantastic in this movie and you know there were some moments in which it looked really scary like when the horn king was bringing his his soldiers back from the dead and you get to see the skeletons form and all that kind of stuff it it really took me back to when i was a kid and i would be watching movies such as the hobbit and flight of the dragons and um you know the last unicorn and all of those uh you know animated uh, fantasy films from the 70s and 80s when i saw them on mr spim's cartoon theater uh, for anybody who remembers what that is <laughs> but i hated everything else <laughs> like like i still hated Terran. like he was just so cocky and he's like i'm gonna be a great warrior and you know watch me be the greatest warrior ever and it's like you know i mean it's, it almost kind of reminds me of like kaylee from quest for camelot it's like i'm gonna be a knight for 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 camelot it's like it's the same thing and then you have like the princess who she like there was no reason for her to be a princess and then we have Gurgi which I know a lot of people hated Gurgi and he was oh my god he was just freaking annoying at times but I think nothing like absolutely nothing compared to um what was that other creature you we know, talk, like the, uh, well, which way talking? Are you talking about um the Horn King's lackey, creeper? Yeah, yeah, that's him. Yeah, that that character. It's just like when he was like a coward and he's like trying to hide himself or something. What was his name again? Creeper. Fun creeper. Fact. That's yeah. what his name is. Yeah. I hated. It. I yeah. think I hated yeah. him more than Gurgi. Yeah. Well, for what's worth, that was an original character. That that thing was not in it the book. It really tells. It didn't fit. He did not fit in that story whatsoever. It, it just felt like. It was like if you were trying to put a square into a, a circle-shaped hole. It just didn't fit. Like, Gurgi, I can see kind of fitting. You know, kind of like, oh, you know, I'm this scared little creature, and, you know, I want to be alongside with you, Master Terran. It's like, I can see that happening. But Creeper just doesn't feel like he belongs in this movie. And then you have, like, 
you know, all the other um, characters that, you know, they seem so interesting. Like you have the witches and, you know, they're talking about like, oh, um, you know, we can be able to grant you this great sword. And, and then they're like, oh, we get to keep the sword in the end and all that kind of stuff. And, and then, the, you know, you have like Gurgi dying and, you know, there's like, oh, you know, I want to keep the sword. And then it's like, oh, but no, I want to have Gurgi in the end. It's like, I don't know. It, 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 it kind of felt like sort of manipulative. It's like, you know, the only way that Terran was able to defeat it was kind of like with the sword. But, you know, the sword was already powerful in its own right. It's not like, you know, Terran did anything to, you know, produce any of those powers. And then, you know, you have Henwin, who's the pig who has these magical powers who can be able to, you know, find out more about the cauldron and all that kind of stuff. And she was pretty useful at points. And Yeah, I know. And, and like I said, this it, it, it just goes back to how much material, even, even though this movie itself was really only adapted from the first two issues of the book series itself. They still left a lot off the te on the table from what the characters were. I mean, I don't know if you've actually read the Predane Chronicles yourself. I have not. But, well, I mean, I don't want, it's not that I want to, I'll try not, not to give away anything because I would highly recommend reading this, but they left a whole bunch of stuff out here. Like, Ilanwe, the reason she was a princess is because she was descended from this kingdom on the other side of the land, and she actually had magical abilities that she had the that she could eventually tap into that we learn about in the later later issues. Fluter Flam, who was basically just comedic relief in this movie, he was actually a king of his own in his own land in the original book, and had a lot had much more history as a warrior and stuff. They leave out characters like. Prince Gwydion, the leader of the Sons of Dawn, who more or less were the rulers, the actual rulers of Pridane. Um, Dalbin, I'll tell you this much, the, the, the character design of Dalbin in this movie is nothing like what he was in the books. In fact, his character design in this movie is actually more akin to that of the character of Call, who was more or less also lived with Taran and Dalvin and actually owned the farm, really owned the farm that they both lived on. But he gets cast out of this movie as well. The Horned King was actually not the primary villain of the book series. In fact, he was only the, the chief lieutenant of the main big bad, the Death Lord Aron. And he actually dies in the first book of the book series, which was titled The Book of Three. The Black Cauldron is actually the second book. Also, Gurgi isn't the one who sacrifices himself to destroy the cauldron in the book series. It was actually this really deep story about uh, a extremely, er uh, even more arrogant, entitled uh, prince warrior than Taran, and they actually spar against each other in the second book, that he has to redeem himself of his ways by sacrificing himself in the cauldron, and he does die for good. There was just so much that got left out. And yeah, I, I can, I can kind of see them, why they would change... The ending of how the cauldron is destroyed in this one, it goes back to basically their whole issue of why they didn't want the dog to die in the Fox and the Hound as well. At the very least, I can understand that. Some yeah, but they killed off old yellers. Like, what, what, what excuse uh, you have, Disney? Yeah, there is that. But yeah, there's just, there is just, I, I, this is why I would tell anybody, and this is why I was, I was especially why I was looking forward to um, Eli's review of this movie, because he's one of the only people I. I discovered that had actually read the books themselves as well. I really wanted to get someone to review this movie who had that type of experience. That's just the number one thing 
I would recommend to anyone possible, especially if you've heard of this movie, regardless of what your views on it are, if you like it or you don't like it, I just highly recommend you check out the original books because they just take the whole legend to such a whole other level. And like I said, they are still among my favorite books of all time. Yeah. Now, now with all of that stuff that Chris had mentioned, I would wish so much that we would get a proper series on Disney+. Plus. I mean, look what happened with the series of unfortunate events in which the movie was so condensed. They took, you know, essentially like the first three books into one movie. And there were some changes that even to the point at which Lemony Snicket himself hated. In fact, if you actually listen to the commentary, you can point out about just how much he hated this movie. So how about Disney take a break from remaking all of the live, uh, the live, you know, remaking all the movies that nobody wants to see remade because they're already good as it is and focus on the ones that didn't work out the first time. Like do a complete series on the Black Cauldron akin to what Netflix did with a series of unfortunate events. You know, stick it close to the book, make it animated if you want to. Sure, you know, keep to the, you know, the same animation style or whatever. But well, I'll yeah. tell you this. Apparently, apparently there was an announcement back in 2016 that they were considering like doing a live action series of the Predane Chronicles that would have been more faithful to the source material, much like probably what they did years before with the Chronicles of Narnia. Unfortunately, yeah. it looks like there hasn't been much head leeway, headway made into developing this Predane Chronicles series, which again, that's something that I would at least like to see, yeah, would like to see them try. I've actually been thinking, I've actually, there have been times in my own head when I've tried, thought about possibly making a stage adaptation of the Predane Chronicles, which I think could be, definitely be some type of possibility. But for now, it's it's kind it, it is kind of being held in limbo, sadly, for the most uh, part. That, that, that's a shame because I can definitely see this. You know, like how the Mandalorian, you know, got people saying, "Hey, you know what? Star Wars is actually pretty, you know, fun to watch as a series." You know, kind of like a, a live action version of Clone Wars, almost in a way. So it's like, hey, if we want to have a fantasy uh, series, then let's go into uh, you know, a live action series of, you know, the Predane Chronicles. I think people would love it. So, yeah, I think that Disney definitely needs to take a break from the live action remakes based off of movies that were already good the first time and focus on the stuff that didn't work out. Like, you know, try to come back to Black Cauldron, come back to, um, you know, uh, uh, Atlantis or Treasure Planet or any of those kind of films that, you know, it had a lot of potential. There was it could have gone somewhere, but, you know, it, the audience just wasn't there yet. And there were some things that could have been written better or tightened up with the production. So, yeah, I think that I don't think they'll be doing Treasure Planet anytime soon again, just because they do have other adaptations of Treasure Island to fall back on. You've got the 1950 film. And then, of course, you've got the Muppet version as well. So that's very it's not true. like we don't have other versions even made by Disney of Treasure Island to fall back on. Yeah, you do have a point. So, yeah, that's definitely you're, you're absolutely right. That's definitely not going to happen anytime soon. But at least for starters, we do need to see a, a live action series of the Predane Chronicles for sure. 
All right, so moving on, we go over to The Great Mouse Detective. So this is the movie that was uh, kind of like the, them saying, okay, we need to pick up the pieces a little bit. We need to incorporate, you know, some new people into the limelight. This is the first time that we do get to see John Musker and Ron Clemens, who you probably know from The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and then Moana. So... This is the first movie that they've ever been a part of, and this is based off of the children book series Basil of Baker Street. And it focuses on a mouse named Basil of Baker Street, and it's very akin to something like a kid version of Sherlock Holmes, except with mice. And so we have a mouse named Olivia whose father was kidnapped and she's trying to find him. And it turns out that the father was kidnapped because we have a rat named Radigan who wants to hire, uh, who wants to take him so that he can be able to make a robotic version of the queen who would tell him, okay, Radigan, you are basically taking over everything now. And, you know, we have Basil trying to find uh, the missing father, and we have this really interesting dynamic between both Basil and with Radigan. Now, I've only seen this movie once when I was a kid, and the thing that I remembered most was obviously Basil when he's experimenting, and Radigan when he's performing his song, and then the Big Ben scene, of course. But looking back on it now, it's such it's such a really entertaining film about just how Basil was so clever and so overconfident, but at the same time, you kind of sense that he knows what he's talking about, very akin to something like Sherlock Holmes. And you have Radigan, who's just this over-the-top villain who's played wonderfully by Vincent Price. And, you know, the animation is really top-notch, especially with the Big Ben scene, when they really utilize the CG effects. And um, this movie, unfortunately, was overlooked because it came out the same year as an American tale and this was unfortunately Don Bluth's like claim to fame in which she said okay I defeated the box office um, records of a Disney movie so um, yeah this I mean after this he never really got this kind of success ever again but nonetheless um, yeah definitely uh, when you look back when, pe when a lot of people look back on the films of this era in particular, and at the very least, the films of the 1980s. This is probably the one that most people will look on as, probably not, if, if not if not to go as far as to say a guilty pleasure, but definitely probably one of the most um, underappreciated films of maybe the entire library of, mm -hmm. of this company. It's definitely carried by, let's face it, Above all else, it is definitely carried by Vincent Price's performance as Radigan, and and he 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 does carry this film for the most part. Of course, fun fact: of course, probably anyone who watched it will probably recognize one other voice in this thing, and then of course the fact that Flavisham, the uh, character that Rav that Radigan uh, kidnaps, he of course was voiced by Alan Young. Yeah, of course, would become much more famous as the voice of Scrooge McDuck himself. In fact, I'm trying to remember. Um, I think it had already been established because this movie came out in 86. Yeah. It was three years, I believe three years earlier that the animated, uh, sh the, the short film, Mickey's Christmas Carol, was released, which I believe was the very first film production in which Alan Young voices the character of Scrooge McDuck in that in that in that movie as the role of Ebenezer Scrooge himself, who of course was the inspiration that 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 um uh, what's the name of uh, Carl Barks himself developed Scrooge McDuck's character 
after. So in that in that case, it all came together. But he also because he did get land that role of Flavisham in this movie as well. So a lot of people would probably recognize that voice. But again, it is definitely Radigan himself and his portrayal by Vincent Price that absolutely carries this movie for almost all, almost all the way. Yeah. And, and it's such a fantastic performance. I mean, Vincent Price is definitely the kind of guy that, you know, he would see an opportunity to take a role, no matter like if it's, you know, like if it's a B movie or if it's something for children or anything of the sort, if he's having a good time doing it, he will do it. And I think that's why even, you know, even after his death, I think a lot of people seem to look fondly on the performances of Vincent Price, because I think he even mentioned this when he was doing all of his B-movies, and even when he did The Haunted House of Dr. Frightenstein, which was this 1970s um, horror variety show that would air it in Canada, that, you know, this is a guy who did plays and Shakespeare and, and various things. It's like, why would he do something like this? Like, why would somebody like Vincent Price, who is well-revered as a, as a gifted actor, be in a Disney film? And I think he was talking about, like, you know, I want to be a part of things that you know, future generations will enjoy. And I mean, I'm not just known for my horror movies. I'm, I want to be known for a whole bunch of things. And it's, and, not, and like he, and it's not like he'd have done that before. I mean, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, he at one time played a one-shot villain on an episode of Get Smart. Right, right. And he was also in Batman as well as Egghead. So yeah, he has done a varied amount of other roles where, you know, not only would the adults who liked his sophistication of Shakespeare and other theatrical works would get into it. He's not only known for his horror uh, performances, but he's also known for his performances in various comedies and with children's properties. So yeah, he really wanted to vary it up because, you know, he knew that younger generations would enjoy his work, which is one of the reasons why he was in other properties um, with Hanna-Barbera when he was Vincent Van Gogh in The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, and he appeared in one of his last roles in uh, Edward Scissorhands. So he really was a varied um, actor, and he portrayed in many ways in such a way that it was just so enjoyable to watch. Like, you can tell that he had a blast with this movie. And, uh, you, and with that, I mean, I think that's why a lot of people still kind of remember this movie, because of Vincent Price's portrayal as Radigan. Um, in, in fact, when I was in Disney World, you know, before the, you know, what happened, um, I actually did see pins of Radigan and Basil together, which I thought was pretty hilarious because it's not something that you see a lot in um, merchandise. And, you know, the, the very few times in which there is great mouse detective merchandise in a Disney uh, shop, there's always going to be Radigan in there. Like, no doubt he's going to be a highlight for a lot of people. And, um, yeah, like, I think that, you know, his performance being so incredibly over the top, but very lovable and very comedic. And then when he gets into his breaking point at Big Ben, where he turns into a savage beast, it's it's amazing. It's just like the the, the the variations of the character is what makes people interested in watching. And, you know, Basil's a great protagonist, too. And, you know, a lot of people seem to, you know, remember his uh, crazy antics as well. Um, unfortunately, because of that, a lot of the other characters seem to get sidelined. You're like, you don't really remember a lot of the others. That, 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 that is true for the most part. They, that, uh, that perhaps the relationship between Basil and Dawson kind of gets overlooked. In fact, in fact, if we really think about it, it's like Dawson's only role is to introduce Olivia and get her to 
basalt at the beginning, and then he and then uh, sadly to say, for the most part, he's just kind of there. Yeah, so that, like that's probably the only one, maybe perhaps the one disappointing factor of the of the thing that they but we don't sadly do not get enough time to fully develop Dawson as a character compared to how what Doctor Watson was. In the original, uh, in the original Sherlock Holmes films, yeah, I mean that's the reason why they were such a great dynamic was that Watson was very calm and he was just as smart as Sherlock, even though there were points in which maybe he overlooked some things. Well, Sherlock was just all over the place and he was manic and he was crazy. He came up with a whole bunch of, um, you know, wild uh, ideals on why he believed in such things. But for the most part, he was right. That's why they worked together as a duo. They were able to complement each other. Sherlock is just this rate, you know, crazy bombastic detective while Watson was more of the calm and subdued detective learning everything from Sherlock Holmes. Watson, I mean, Dawson on the other hand is, you know, he's, he's like taking in all the information from Basil, but he's just too subdued to the point in which you don't even have to have him in the movie. Like you could just cut him off and just focus on you know, uh, Basil trying to help Olivia and trying to get her father back, and then with the confrontation with Radigan, and I don't think not, not much would have changed. You know, I, I it just yeah, it just feels like a bit of a disappointment. It, it, it's kind of like when I was discussing about like um, you know, any time that I see Jim Carrey or Robin Williams be like the highlight of a film is that all the other actors they seem to suffer. It's like, because that, you know, Radigan is such a bombastic character, everybody else just gets sidelined. Everything else becomes a little weak. It's, it's like how I felt about with the mask. I know a lot of people love the mask and we, and Aaron and I loved it too. And we talked about it in crystal skull, but everybody else suffers. Like you don't really care too much about any of the other characters. And Mrs. Doubtfire is another example in which like we loved, um, you know, Robin Williams portrayal as Mrs. Doubtfire and as, um, and as Daniel, um, you know, Daniel Hilliard, but all the other characters, you know, they just seem to, you know, be there and you just kind of wish that Robin Williams would be more in the film. Yeah, I mean, all the other stuff with Basil and with um, with Radigan is so entertaining and is so great. And then when you focus on everybody else, it's like, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'd rather just see what happens with Basil and Radigan. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of elements in this movie that are just fantastic. But um, but because there are two characters that are just so great that everything else just seems to kind of suffer. So it's kind of like an unbalanced movie when it comes to character portrayals. Story-wise, it's pretty simple. You know, your typical detective story. Nothing much to really say about that. Animation's great. So, yeah, I'd say it's a pretty solid film that you should definitely check out. Okay, so now we go over to our last movie in the Disney Bronze era. And this is... Oliver and Company, which is a modern take on the classic Charles Dickens story of Oliver Twist. So instead of it being humans and taking place around the 1800s in England, it's, fe it's featuring animals and it takes place in New York City in modern times. And you have this little orphan kitten who um, is wandering around because all of his other brothers and sisters have been adopted and he's just trying to find his way. And so he meets up with a dog named Dodger and he has his own companion of dogs and they live with a homeless guy named, um, named Fagan and you know, he needs to collect money for Sykes and you have, um, uh, you know, the kitten finding a little girl named Jenny who uh, takes him in and calls him Oliver. And then, 
uh, along the way, you know, Jenny gets kidnapped because she's worth a lot of money. And, uh, you know, you have the, you know, you have Dodger and, and everybody else trying to rescue them. So, yeah. It, now, this came around roughly the same time as The Land Before Time. I believe and, it actually was released the, the, the exact same day, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it was released around the same day as Land Before Time. And I think that Land Before Time actually got better reviews than Oliver and Company. I don't think it made as much money as Oliver and Company. It just got better reviews saying, if you want to see a true Disney film akin to like, you know, something like Fantasia or any of the other classic films, you go watch Land Before Time. Well, Oliver and Company just feels not Disney-like. I guess this is how people felt about Emperor's New Groove not being very Disney-like. Because it just it's so far removed from what you would expect from a Disney film. It doesn't take place in a classic period. There's no princesses. There's no... Um, you know, like, um, you know, there's, it, it looks like very different. I mean, it's, it takes place in New York City. It takes place in the modern times, which, you know, they don't do, Disney movies, even still to this day, don't do very often in which they take place in a modern setting. Uh, I think, you know, more recently you have films like Wreck-It Ralph and I guess Zootopia, if you want to call it, in that in its own universe. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, like leading up to other movies that would come up afterwards, they definitely lean more towards like a classic time period. So, I mean, I do give it kudos that it does try to, you know, take it in modern times. They're trying to do a modern take off of Oliver Twist. And I, I think that's an interesting idea. But unfortunately, a lot of people just didn't really seem to gravitate to it when it first came out. Now the movie is considered to be like a cult classic, and a lot of people do tend to call it underrated, similar to like The Great Mouse Detective. But even still to this day, when people are saying about like, which was the better movie that came out in 1988 between The Land Before Time or Oliver and Company, most people are going to say Land Before Time was the better movie. Well, I'll give you the, I'll, I'll let you know about this. Like I said, I am, um, yeah, yeah, when I was a kid, young kid in the 80s, I did see the previous two films, The Black Cauldron and, uh, the, and The Great Mouse Detective, when they were in their original theatrical runs. However, I, of course, that was with the caveat that those were both two films that my parents just took us to, I think, just to give us something to do. I wasn't really looking forward to watching either one of them. Mm -hmm. This was the first was the first Disney originally released film that I really was in uh, got excited about seeing in theaters. There was just something about this thing that like, this cast the cast stuck out for me. It looked like a it looked much more lighthearted and lively and entertaining than the previous two were. And of course, like I really got um and of course I got a. Uh, suckered in because of the musical numbers in this thing, which is oh, above all else is probably what carries this uh, movie above all else. You've got the numbers by Billy Joel and Bette Midler, and then like I actually got to see it whew, about maybe 15 years or so later when it got a theatrical re-release, and while I remembered the um, even while I remembered the opening song Once Upon a Time in New York City from my original viewing of it, it was watching it that second time in theaters that I was starting to realize, wait a minute, this guy's, this voice sounds familiar. Oh my God, it's Huey Lewis. Yes, because, it is. Because it was by that time that I'd become a ginormous fan of the Back to the Future films and it downward, and, and, and basically Huey Lewis and the News had become my favorite performing group. I had, had so many of their greatest hits uh, saved up everywhere. So that was, even when I came back to it, as a young adult, that got me excited about the film once uh, once again. It, is it 
one of the best overall stories. You know, maybe not, but I think when you really look at it, and I'm just thinking about this in my head right now, it might be closer to Disney than what a lot of people think. I mean, you've got this the setting of you've got the setting of using the the animals as the main characters, as they've done before with films like The Rescuers. You've got uh, this uh, this um, protagonist who comes from no- nothing and, and needs to find his way into becoming a hero. It's almost very similar. In a way, it's kind of similar to what they would do with Aladdin years later. I mean, you say there's no princesses. I mean, Jenny is in some ways a princess in her own right. We I look guess, that she's this oh, little, either that or well, she's this have... girl who comes from a, a more a well-off a lifestyle that we later see in the movie itself. There's some good comedic acts from, especially Cheech Marin as the Chihuahua, the Chihuahua Tito, in both yeah. his confrontations with like both the Bulldog Francis and Bette Midler's character as Georgette. There's it might not be a the most complete story of any film that Disney's put together, but it might be one of those, at least especially from this time period, where there's just so many good individual scenes that can be so memorable for one reason or another that, yeah, it is something that I think a lot of people do enjoy coming back to in their own. It's, it's definitely one of my uh, biggest guilty pleasures as far as the Disney library goes to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do see some of the good moments in this. I do enjoy the fact that um, you have the relationship w- between, you know, Oliver and Dodger, how they have this close friendship with each other, almost akin to, well, it's not really similar to the friendship of Oliver and Dodger in the book, in which when, you know, Dodger was the older kid and he knew the ropes about stealing and, you know, he taught Oliver everything that he knew and he took him in when he was starving in the streets And, um, you know, you have Fagin, you know, which, you know, looking back on the original book today, Fagin is not exactly the best portrayal of a of a character. I mean, I know he's supposed to be the villain, but they were saying like, oh, you know, he's like the evil Jew or something. So I'm not going to get into that. But I guess maybe this is why Dom DeLuise wasn't in Land Before Time, because he was in Oliver and Company instead. Um, So. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, you have Jenny, who is, uh, you know, very akin to the old man who found Oliver. And, uh, you know, this was before when Bill Sykes and Nancy, you know, were going to try to steal from the old man's house. And then, you know, Oliver ended up unconscious when he was shot. And then um, the old man took him in. And then he recognized the lady from the portrait, which just turned out to be like, um, you, you know, um, you know, the, the wife of, you know, a, a son that, uh, you know, of a, of a friend that he knew, a long, complicated story, you know, go look it up. But, you know, there's also the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot of similarities between the original Oliver Twist book and with this movie. Um, you know, obviously, it's modernized in New York City and with anthropomorphic animals and that kind of stuff. But, Yeah, like, I I do remember it for moments, just like you were saying. I mean, I do remember, like, the relationship between, you know, Dodger and Oliver. I do, you know, remember their little song cues. Um, There's also, um, you know, Jenny playing the piano with Oliver enjoying, and they have that little montage of them being together. And you have, you know, Georgette, you know, flashing her pretty looks uh during that song and you know tito anytime that tito is on screen is hilarious which is why i think they brought 
Cheech Marine back to do the Lion King, which I think this was around the time in which when you know Cheech left Chong, uh, Tommy Chong uh, when they were doing their their stoner films in the seventies, and he wanted to lean more towards doing like family friendly films in the eighties and nineties to you know be doing something more uh, positive for his kids, uh, kind of like what Eddie Murphy did. So it made a lot of sense why he was in this movie, uh, which he does a great job, and um, yeah, and also. Uh, you know, some of the songs, uh, you know, with Billy Joel and Huey Lewis, I mean, some of them were even written by Howard Ashman. I think this was the first Disney film that he worked on right before, you know, he and Alan Menken made history with The Little Mermaid. And uh, some of them were even written by, like, Dean Pitchford and Barry Manilow, if you can believe it. So, yeah, and, you know, that that scene where Sykes dies when he's crashing into the subway that is brutal. I remember that scene so vividly. It's like, I don't remember anything about this villain other than how he dies. Because it's like, Bill Sykes in the original Oliver Twist was so brutal. If You know, like, he was like the villain in the original book, in which he was ruthless, he beat up Nancy, he was so um, abusive to her, like, he treated Oliver terribly, like, you know, forcing him to do things he didn't want to. He murdered Nancy. He was wandering around with his dog and, you know, almost to the point in which he was just like, almost like a like a zombie, just like thinking about everything that he'd done. Like he was a much more stronger, complex villain in the book as well as in the movie, Oliver. But Sykes here is just like your typical, like crooked gangster. It's like, I'm collecting money from this homeless guy and I'm going to steal this poor girl who is coming from a rich family and what have you. It's like, yeah, I don't, I mean, he's not one of the better Disney villains, especially from this particular time period. So yeah, I don't really remember too much about the villain other than he, you know, how he dies. Fagin was okay. I mean, you know, Dom DeLuise does a pretty decent job as always, but don't really remember too much about him. Um, the other dogs, they do have their personalities, like you were saying with Tito and Francis, but, you know, all the other ones, not really fully developed. I mean, Oliver is kind of like your, you know, like your typical orphan uh, character. It's like, you know... The world around him is what builds him up. It's like, you know, he started off from nothing and then he becomes something else. And so um, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, we're supposed to insert ourselves into seeing the experiences that Oliver went through. That's how it was similar to the book in which we get to learn more about Oliver's backstory when Mr. Brownlow discusses with, you know, with Bill Sykes about, um, you know, the reason why, um, uh, no, it was... um. Uh, what was it like the other uh, what was it, the other character who was with um you know Fagin and Bill Sykes about like he wanted to go after Oliver because he found out that he was like Oliver's half brother or something. So yeah, I can definitely see the akin to the bare minimum of the book. Um, what they try to add in some things to it to kind of make it more modernized. But yeah, I mean, there are some good things about this movie. I will give it that. But if you want to talk about like overlooked Disney films, I think that, you know, Robin Hood and The Great Mouse Detective are probably my favorite ones. Oliver is very similar to like Rescuers, in which is definitely middle of the road. There's some good things about it, but there's some things that could have been done better. And yeah, that's pretty much it. So if you want to know more about our t discussions of these Disney movies leading up from Oliver and Company, you can go check out our Disney Renaissance uh, episode where we talked about Little Mermaid leading up to Tarzan. So, uh, Chris, once again, thank you so much for coming on by. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, tell everybody uh, where can people find you at, plug and promote your stuff. 
yeah, that much. There actually isn't that much to be doing for the rest of this year over at RowdyC.com. I have a couple more TV trashes um, to be uh, to be completed probably by the end of the year. One of which is actually going to be. Um, uh, but BB get we'll have a guest appearance from J.I. O'Fallon, aka the long-haired creepy guy. We're working on that one as of right now. Definitely want definitely looking forward to be able to giving him an appearance in, in one of my videos since he's dealing with some issues with his own channel as of right now. Other than that, all I can just do is to tell you is that do try and stay tuned for 2021 because there on TV Trash and at RowdyC.com is where I really hope to step things up back up once again. I've got a whole thing, a really whole full slate of a theme before I'm planning on going on for the entire 21, 2021 uh, year, especially building up to the eventual 300th episode of TV Trash. Sounds great. And um, yeah, as for me, I will be posting up at least one more video at the end of the year, but it's been, you know, kind of difficult for me to catch up with everything due to schoolwork and due to a lot of projects, but hopefully that you'll enjoy this. But I do have to say very similar to you, Chris, that 2021 is definitely going to be a major um, step up of content for me, especially since um, next year will be the 10th anniversary of Old School Lane. So I definitely have something special plan for that when the time comes but in the meanwhile i hope that you guys have been enjoying the content i have been producing since then uh also if you can find me on uh, oldschoollane.blogspot.com youtube.com slash oldschoollane facebook.com slash oldschoollane i'm on twitter at patty underscore b underscore miranda uh you can find my podcast on anchor spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, radio public stitcher all those places new episodes of casual chats and old school lane interviews will go there first and then it'll go up in a few days on youtube so thank you so much for listening everyone uh let us know in the comments below about your your thoughts of the Disney Bronze Age? What were your favorites? What were your least favorites? Which ones do you think were underrated? Um, what were your favorite uh, characters or moments? And uh, what did you think of this particular era overall compared to the other eras of Disney from the Silver Era, the Golden Era, the Renaissance Era, and even two more recent eras like the Revival Era? So that's it. Hope to see you around soon and take care. Yeah. I said, Ooh.